This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is Could Will have saved the ABA? Could anyone have? We are back. I am Jason. With me as usual is Rich. Rich, how's it going? Not too bad. How are you? Probably better than the San Diego Conquistadors <laughs> are doing. I would have to say. They're not doing too well these days. Uh, 2016. No. The Conquistadors of the uh, ABA not doing well. Uh, the league's struggling a little bit as well. But, uh, you know, new season coming yeah. up here in October. So it'll, I, I think I think the ship will be righted. Finally for the the, the Yeah, one of these... Yeah, one of these days, the Qs are going to make it. <laughs> With Wilt as the coach, player coach, they got it. Everything's in place. I don't know why it's not going to work, but... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the we talked a little bit about the Qs before the Conquistadors, the only ABA expansion team in history, and their owner Leonard Which, Bloom decided is, is, is to it, not to interrupt. It is a very fun fact because we had that episode in the series where we where we went over like how many te- and like honestly, I forgot what the number is exactly, but there's like twenty five or something teams. But yes, there's only one expansion team because everybody else moved and changed names and did all that stuff. So crazy. We did a whole episode about it for people that want to know. But it's 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 fascinating. There's one expansion team. Yeah, there's like twenty five different team names and cities and all that sort of stuff. It's just crazy. Yeah, exactly, and. Um... And we went we went through some of our the crazier owners of the uh, league as well. Uh, Leonard Bloom popped up on there, and uh, he signed Will Chamberlain coming off of a finals appearance with the Lakers in '73 to a six hundred thousand per year contract to play for and coach the team. Um, he, he said, "Wilt's my player coach with the emphasis on player." And they immediately distributed BD photos showing Wilt in a Q's uniform holding an ABA ball. You can find it pretty easily if you Google it. Uh, Bloom said in loose balls, "The other ABA owners laughed at me when I said I wanted Wilt, but after I signed him, the owners gave me a plaque because it was such a coup for the league." And he actually played in four exhibition games, uh, averaging 18 points. I cannot find anything, any more specifics than that. That's all I could find, too. Um, yeah, that, that's all I really yeah. have ever seen anywhere, which is, is interesting. But, you know, given <laughs> the time and the league and all that. Uh, but, yeah, you would think like Wilt playing in exhibition games in a, you know, a, another league would have been something a lot of teams would have covered or a lot of newspapers uh, would have done a little bit more coverage on. But, yeah, it's really hard to find anything about those exhibition games. A California court ruled that he could not play, but he could coach the San Diego franchise, and so he he did. He coached the team, although was was more of a you know a figurehead type coach. He he was around and he you know did uh, spread his authority every once in a while. But I think most people agreed that Stan Albeck was the uh, real coach. Uh, interesting that um, the other issues with San Diego, and you went to we went into it a little bit on the uh, p- previous show, but they were locked out of the huge arena because of personality conflict. The sports arena in San Diego, which which seated fourteen thousand, so their arena was the Peterson Gym on the campus of San Diego State, which had a capacity of thirty two hundred, and the marketing campaign for the team was the tallest coach in the smallest arena. Which <laughs> I love it. That's yes. good. That's uh, I was gonna say. Well, the, the Kings are getting a new one. Who, who's the, I think I'm trying to figure out who the ta- what's the smallest arena now in the NBA. I was gonna say Sacramento probably for a while, but maybe Milwaukee until they get their new digs. But I think someone else should take this up as well because there's nothing better than <laughs> making light of how 
small your arena is. But yeah, you got the tallest coach, though. That's fine. Like, yeah, so, you know. Yeah, and they averaged uh, about uh, eighteen hundred per game, That's not so great. That's not great. didn't even <laughs> do so well. So, so Wilta's coach, uh, eh, not quite the coup that everyone was hoping it would be. Not at all. And as you mentioned, Stan Elbeck was was essentially doing a lot of the real coaching. Um, you know, Wilt had been quoted as, you know, I felt from the start that Stan, Stan Elbeck, uh, was the real coach. He never placated me, but he was willing to do whatever I wanted to, uh, wanted him to do. A lot of the press would ask, does Wilt show up for practices? And he handled it extremely well because, you know, <laughs> the answer is not all the time is that answer. So Elbeck uh, said he learned from Wilt about working with big men and expectations and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the team said, you know, the team remarked that, you know, Wilt wasn't a terrible coach, that they got some tough practices under both, but that it, it was really, I mean, Elbeck was doing a lot of the heavy lifting, but Will was still, it wasn't like he was completely out of the picture. He was there uh, to an extent. Uh, for people who don't remember Stan Albeck, uh, he went on to coach the Cavaliers, Spurs, Nets, Bulls, as well as Bradley University through the rest of his career. So he ended up uh, carving out a really nice kind of head coaching career uh, in the uh, NBA. But yeah, this was his first kind of beginnings as a quote head coach here as, as an assistant. But uh, yeah, there was a bunch of other. Um, Stuff about Wilt. Uh, Alex Hannum, who was a former coach uh, of Wilt Chamberlain, said that Chamberlain has great feel for pro basketball, but the day-to-day things that are an important part of basketball just bored him. He did not have the patience. Uh, and then, yeah, Wilt kept a suite at a San Diego hotel, and he commuted for games and practices in his multi-million dollar, uh, from his multi-million dollar Beller mansion. But uh, it didn't always work out all that well. Alex Groza, who was the Conquistadors general manager, recalled that Wilt would often take a PSA plane that landed at 6.30 or 6.45, and the game started at 7.30. Uh, he had a guy pick him up at the airport to get to the game, on time, and then also uh, Graza went on to say, uh, "What would have uh, what would have made a great coach if he had applied himself, uh, having played under various systems in his career? He could have applied those philosophies to his own, but he didn't take the time to do it. Still, I've always liked Wilt. He was his own person, and he chose to live that way. So, you know, there, there's some interesting stuff there of, of him, you know, maybe not showing up on time as much as he should, and some other stuff. But uh, again, people, you know, players always seem like they were into it. Uh, there was rookie uh, Bo Lamar, who was a Conquistadors rookie, and uh, he said uh, it was a great experience. What was very knowledgeable about the game and he taught us a lot not only about basketball but about other things he told us about staying in condition playing to the best of our abilities and having fun so you know there, there's some there's some benefits at least to an extent of having sort of that guy I mean that's obviously a guy that, that a rookie would look way up to and then I'm sure he was great with the big men but yeah it was like the day-to-day stuff that you could really get a sense that will just just wasn't into all that well um Regardless of, you know, all the kind of turmoil going on in the coaching ranks, the Hughes were actually a pretty good team. Uh, they were better um, this year than they were during the 73-74 season. Uh, or, or, sorry, in, in this season than they were their first season. Uh, they improved from 30 to 37 wins. Uh, they had Casey Jones as their original coach, so they had a nice little lineage of uh, ex-players as coaches. Uh, the Hughes' biggest talent uh, was rookie Caldwell Jones. He was, you know, skinny, but a talented 6'7 center. They also had uh, the aforementioned uh, Bo Lamar, who averaged more than 20 points per game, and had one game with 50 points as well. Uh, team also had uh, ABA vets uh, Stu Johnson and Red Robbins. Uh, Chamberlain also signed a few of his old Laker teammates. Uh, Travis Machine Gun Grant and Flynn Robinson were the guys. And the Qs were a wide-open team. They took about 194 more three-pointers uh, than any other team, but only made 27%. So not, not the best idea all the time. Uh, and their defense wasn't very good either. But, you know, not a bad team. Now, 37 wins, they're okay. And, you know, Wilt's not a complete meltdown as coach. But it, it wasn't what it was really advertised or at least hoped by a lot of people to be. 
Yeah. And there was a good uh, feature on Wilt as a coach from a 1991 article in the uh, L.A. Times, which which th- threw a lot of good details in. It's also talked about quite a bit in uh, Loose Balls as well. There's some interesting uh, Wilt in the ABA stories. Uh, Wilt quoted himself. He says, I remember playing the Nets uh, with Dr. J and we had a great deal of success against them. I threatened my players by telling them, if you let Dr. J dunk the ball, you'll answer to me personally. Back off 15 feet and allow the outside shot, but don't let him get to the basket. So, uh, now Irving did score his uh, career high against the Qs, but that was a year after Wilt had left. So you can't necessarily blame that one on uh, Wilt. And uh, Senator Gene Moore said every day there seems to be a different start practice. One day Andy Williams was here. Another time it was Archie Moore. Wilt works out with us, but a lot of times he has to stop and talk to some young lady on the telephone. And then Wilt will later call Moore a fat pig and cut him. So it didn't really work out so well for uh, Gene Moore. Um, There's a really great story from Loose Balls about a brawl that went on with the Pacers and Mel Daniels and, you know, the the, the Qs and Pacers player getting into it and there's, you know, words being exchanged and heated things going on and, and, and some exchange of fisticuffs and then suddenly Wilt picks up Mel Daniels like a toothpick and Mel Daniels was one of the toughest you know biggest guys <laughs> in the ABA right. and you know put him away and that you know, pretty much ended it right there just kind of showing the different level of physicality that Wilt was on from anybody else and uh, Gene Littles who was a guard for the Cougars uh, talked about you know even as coach Wilt was a draw when San Diego came to Greensboro to play the Cougars we sold that yeah unfortunately nobody in San Diego <laughs> agreed with that but right. that's all right hey yeah. it was a traveling draw that's that's cool that's well, which counts, yeah you know? which is uh, you know common for big men I mean that was something Wilt dealt with in the ABA you know that's why the the Warriors eventually traded him because you know he was doing well on the road but wasn't really doing that well in San right. Francisco so that was that was kind of a common thing um Unfortunately, I think for that Greensboro game, Wilt either didn't show up or showed up late, so that wasn't <laughs> that, that wasn't the best well, impression. Too, yes. Um, Mike Storn, who was the commissioner of the league, uh, there were some complaints about Wilt wearing sandals on the road. Apparently, that was an issue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know why, but I love Wilt. Wilt's yeah, the best. Like, yeah, just shows up. So twenty minutes late, he's wearing sandals. He's talking to some lady on a phone. It's it's the best. Yeah. So Storin, you know, uh, approached Wilt, and he he was really intimidated. Intimidated by, you know, because Wilt's a big guy, and, you know, could, if you got mad, it would obviously be um, intimidating. But, you know, Storin said he brought it up, and Wilt was nice about it, said, you know, no problem. I'll, uh, you know, I'll follow the dress code. It's not a big deal, even though he even said it was kind of a ridiculous thing. Um, there's also a story from practice where uh, there's a ball that gets stuck up in, um, stuck up near the bat, or somewhere up high, and no one can get to it. And then, uh, Wilt eventually uh, jumps up to get the ball while wearing a suit and uh, and new dress shoes. So not so not not even wearing basketball gear. He can jump higher than anybody else to uh, get the ball. Um, and there's also a uh, a story about uh, you know Wilt kind of you know, being involved during a, a practice and getting beat by uh, Caldwell Jones who spun off a pick and dunked. And then Wilt saying, "Run it again, and I'll break somebody's arm." So he wasn't going to be you know uh, beaten even. Uh, um, he wasn't going to get embarrassed even in a situation like that. And then uh, Wilt said that uh, coaching was one of the more unexpectedly fulfilling years of my pro basketball career. I enjoyed coaching, and I think I think I did a decent job with what I had to work with. The ABA at that time was as strong as the NBA. So you know, I, I think the question is, 
if Wilt had been able to play, would that really have made a significant difference for the ABA? Because we're into 74, and that's a time where the talent level with the ABA and NBA is fairly even. You know, the ABA, Irving is this established star. They have George McGinnis. They have some some top-level talent. But there's also getting to the point where the franchises, some of them are kind of on their last legs and starting to decline. The Squires are having a rough time. The Stars are starting to have a rough time. The Qs obviously struggle. So uh, there's sort of these two parallel tracks. And you wonder if Wilt at that point being able to play would have brought the league enough attention where it would have been, you know, in a significantly stronger position for lasting longer or whether it would have been able to, you know, be in a better position for a merger. Yeah, I think at least short term, I, I think it would have been a, a pretty good coup. I mean, of course, you know, Will at this point in his career is starting to starting to wear down a little bit. But just the idea that Will Chamberlain is, you know, superstar, I think from the optics standpoint of just the idea that, hey, th- this former NBA superstar, a guy that's still, you know, arguably you could say is still a superstar in the NBA, of course, you know, it, while he's you know winding down he's still he's still a big time part of that lakers team that had just recently made the finals he's still you know still in 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 a relative prime of his career at, at the you know at the tail end or whatever and i think that would have really uh i i don't know again like I, is it gonna keep the league alive is it gonna do all that i don't know but yeah at least for mergers to maybe expedite or at least to yeah is it, again make you know san diego a legit market make you know maybe a few more tv games something like that i mean you i, I don't see any way that it wouldn't have helped or it would have made it I, like i i think it on a would have made some amount of difference just having Wilt on there I mean just the optics of Wilt Chamberlain playing in the ABA I think is a, is a huge deal yeah I I agree I think it would have made it would have certainly been helpful um but I don't know if it would have been you know a big splash in other words talk um about the cues moving to LA you know which theoretically if he'd been able to play and move to LA although probably he they would have been done better in San Diego and probably would have would have stayed there maybe even made a deal to get into the sports arena which they eventually got into but by then it was it was too late for them um but, but yeah I, I mean I, I definitely think that yeah is it enough to save the league eh, you know questionable but maybe you know a couple years of stronger business and they're in a better shape for the merger or maybe you know it even entices the merger to happen a little bit quicker because you know we can still we can still get Will too was you know when, when the NBA lost Will it definitely was harmful to the league you know in terms of um, you know drawing crowds and that sort of thing drawing attention so absolutely yeah, and even if you play one year or whatever, just just get new eyeballs in the league, just understand that the league has, you know, oh wow, geez, they got Will Chamberlain, you know, hey, the, league, the and and again, like because people will mention, and you know, Wilson, his quote said it, and everybody that around this time, it's like the ABA is getting very close in talent gap, and just having a guy like a Will Chamberlain play in your league and show that, hey, look, this is, you know, the, these are the guys he's playing with, just adding some extra eyes on the league, just adding extra news reports, just adding extra stuff like that would have, I think, just done a, a lot, even in the short term, just to get that ABA in a better st- standing. But yeah, again, like would it have saved the ABA? I mean, probably not. I mean, it probably, you know, it probably would have been a short term, if anything. But I do think there would have been a, a difference or at least a benefit of him getting on the court. But versus him coaching where I, I just don't know if there's that much of an, uh, uh, a real sexy story there about like, well, Chamberlain's coaching. And like, it doesn't help, too, that he really didn't care. So, yes, unless he's getting into fights with Mel Daniels, you know, every <laughs> night. Yeah, covered. that would right. have been a good, uh, good yeah. story. But uh, nobody was there. So. Right. So uh, looking at a few of the other key NBA players who jumped to the ABA, uh, we've addressed Rick Barry and Zelma Beatty elsewhere. Those were the, really the first two major stars. Barry, of course, you know, really being the uh, you know a, a huge star for the uh, NBA and, and being a huge Q. Um, 
a couple of others that stand out uh, that were actually were teammates for a little bit while. Um, first is uh, is Billy Cunningham of the uh, 76ers who went over to the uh, Carolina Cougars. Yeah, so in uh, 1969, the Cougars, uh, they signed Cunningham, who was, uh, he was still under contract with Philadelphia, of course, uh, for the 69-70 season. So they signed him to a three-year, $455,000 contract to take effect after he played out his option year uh, in 70-71 with Philadelphia. Uh, the Cougars also tried to get Luke Jackson from the Sixers, but that didn't work out. But regardless, they got Cunningham. Uh, he tried to back out of the deal because uh, the Carolina was missed a payment. Uh, but the courts eventually ruled in favor of the Cougars, which we will maybe talk about here a little bit later in another show that you listen to. But uh, yeah, he ended up going to the ABA and doing pretty well. He ended up as the uh, uh, ABA MVP in the 72-73 season. He averaged 24 points, 12 rebounds, 6 assists, and 2.5 steals per game while shooting a career-high 49% from the field. Uh, unless you think that the uh, ABA competition or lack thereof inflated the numbers, the Cougars went 5-1 and one against NBA teams during the exhibition slate that year. So they had a great exhibition year and just a great team overall led by, uh, you know, in his prime, Billy Cunningham. Um, uh, the Cougars had their first winning record under Larry Brown, of course, former ABA player, now young head coach and you know man we still know today Larry Brown he's 57 and 27 uh, they fall to the uh, the Colonels in 1973 in seven games on a real tough series uh, Carolina's fortunes then worsened the next year as Cunningham missed all but 32 games of the kidney ailment and the Cougars fell back to 47 wins uh, Cunningham did come back in time for the postseason but uh, he disappointed uh, he only mustered up about seven points and five rebounds per game in about 20 minutes per night he was obviously just not healthy at that point yet he still uh, needed a little bit more time and the, uh, the Colonel swept the Cougars uh, and Cunningham played his last game uh, for Carolina. He went back to Philadelphia, uh, 74-75. But a uh, decent little run there with an ABA MVP uh, mixed in and, and really kind of changed the fortune for Carolina, at least for, you know, a year or two. So Yeah, and that, by the way, that account was from um, Curtis Harris of, uh, of Probe's History. So I wish you give him credit for that. Uh, um, and uh, his and Cunningham's teammate, Joe Caldwell, he actually jumped from Atlanta to uh, the uh, – the Cougars in 1970, he actually was able to go straight to the league because of a sort of an odd loophole where the Hawks had offered Caldwell less than 75% of his previous salary, which apparently violated the reserve clause in his contract and made him a free agent outright. So that was a, a very rare circumstance that uh, went on. Usually the players who jumped from leagues who had to sit out for a year. Um, Caldwell was mad because uh, the Hawks signed Pete Maravich to a huge contract and felt slighted when they wouldn't pay him a similar deal. Uh, and, he, you know, talent-wise, he was certainly worth it. He'd averaged 21.1 points a game for Atlanta. Atlanta had um, gone to the uh, division finals and, you know, was a 50-plus a win team, had a, you know, potentially was a team that was uh, on track for, you know, a conference finals or a finals appearance, but that team was sort of broken up because of Maravich. Um Interesting how um, there's sort of a split in the the owner of the uh, Cougars, Ted Munchak, said he'd never seen him play and didn't know who he was. Uh, Carl Shearer was the GM, ran the operation, said we had to have a guy like him, where Shearer said in loose balls that Munchak from Atlanta wanted uh, Caldwell and he didn't really uh, wasn't really that excited about it. Um Caldwell and the Cougars, not really a good uh, marriage. Uh, Caldwell was, he was a really great, versatile player, could do nearly anything, but, but being a go-to score was not good for him. And he constantly battled with his coaches and management and ownership. Even the idea of selling his contract back to Atlanta is broached. Um, he, um, 
Although he did, he managed to make the all ABA second team uh, in his first year. The second year, he missed 23 games with a knee injury. And then the 73 season that we talked about with Larry Brown coming in, Cunningham added to the team. There were a few alpha dog issues between Cunningham and Caldwell, but otherwise the team got along fairly well. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, went to the division finals where they lost to the um, or the Colonels, but you had a very successful season. Uh, then the team slips, Cunningham is hurt, and then the franchise leaves for St. Louis. Uh, Caldwell and Steve Jones are basically the only holdovers to that regime. And then 74-75, uh, St. Louis management blames Caldwell for influencing team star Marvin Barnes to briefly leave the team. And the team's management claimed that Caldwell had led Barnes astray, which, you know, um, he needs a lot of effort to do that. He was uh, suspended for activities detrimental to the best interest of professional basketball. He never played another pro basketball game and has failed, had filed various lawsuits over the years because he believes that he was wrongly blacklisted by the ABA and later the NBA. And then uh, he ended up suing the Cougars owner over his pension, which he, that case he won. The, uh, most of the cases ended up being dismissed. But so not really a a happy uh, situation for Joe Caldwell, unfortunately, for him or his team. Uh, after that not at all um next guy on our list dave bing yes dave bing he had planned to sign with the washington caps uh, the oakland oaks had moved across the country to washington and were having trouble convincing rick Barry to come with them of course that was be a, a constant uh, thing there uh, owner earl foreman who we mentioned many times uh, in this podcast throughout and especially in our uh, NBA, our aba owners or our, our owners of the 70s episode which you definitely check out uh he needed a big name to draw in fans so they went after bing who was from dc uh bing was you know, under, really underpaid with the pistons and he was more than happy to jump to a new league uh, signing for $500,000 for three years. Uh, he began to regret the decision uh, when Foreman announced the team would again be moving to Virginia. And like Rick Barry, he was not very happy about moving to Virginia uh, to go play ball. So uh, this gave being a loophole to opt out, and he renegotiated a three-year deal with the Pistons for almost the same money. So, you know, there, there were some questions if he just merely used the ABA as leverage or if it legitimately was the, the, you know, the decision to go to Virginia that really changed him. But you can see, I mean, there was some, if you really do a search for it, I found a few different news articles, and I think there was a preview you in Ebony Magazine that's talking about, oh man, Dave Bing coming to the ABA or whatever. Like, it's a big deal. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, was really a big time player and him jumping to the ABA was, was going to be a big deal for the ABA and especially for that franchise, the Oaks, Caps, Virginia, whatever the hell you, you know, franchise. And yeah, him deciding not to go, you know, that, that, that kind of hurt the franchise in a lot of ways, especially when, you know, then it coupled with Rick Barry also not wanting to go to Virginia as well. So just not a really good <laughs> time for that franchise. But that would have been really cool to see uh, Bing and, and uh, if, if, I mean, there was it probably going to be a tough time to get Bing and Barry to come at the same time, but at least one of the two would have been really cool uh, to see in Virginia. But nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, not really working out. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, uh, most of the players who went to the ABA had some level of regret about going. I mean, uh, the the guys who you know came out of college and went to the ABA, you know, a lot of them obviously did fine and and, and had a, had a great deal of success. And you know, and, and obviously Irving left on fine terms you know, with the merger. Uh, you know, McGinnis left a year early, but that went went you know that went fairly smoothly. But uh, for whatever reason, the people who came from the NBA, um, uh, you know, it either they ended up jumping back to the NBA or they had just weird career situations that uh, didn't go out. I recently learned about... also, Lou Hudson was looking to jump, you know, in, in the initial year of the uh, ABA and the courts are forced 
forced him to go to St. Louis without being able to go to the ABA. Of the initial guys who all signed ABA deals, Barry was among those, but also Wayne Hightower, Jim Barnes, Bob Love, Clyde Lee, Joe Strotter, and Chico Vaughn. Only Hightower and Vaughn ended up actually playing in the ABA. You know, so there were a lot of in the very very early years there was a lot of guys who kind of teased going or tried to go, but you know there really only were a handful of instances of established you know nba players that nba teams would have wanted actually going to the league the wrote most of the other nba guys you know were not one now some of them like a freddie lewis or um you know guys like roger brown or doug moe or uh, you know who had been blackballed by the nba never played the nba those guys obviously ended up establishing themselves and there were you know good opportunities for those guys who had talent and could have made it in the nba had they just had the right breaks but as far as guys who kind of had proven themselves in the nba there aren't really that many who really um uh, you know made, made a huge impact it, it, it's more of a limited thing than i i would have you expected you know before kind of doing the research on this yeah exactly and it, the thing you always get with all these is that the, the money is coming there i mean the aba is willing to pay these guys a lot i mean whether whether the checks are going to clear that, that might yeah. be another story or, or whether but... yeah or that money is going to you know actually be there in front or whether it's going to be deferred 20 years is another yeah, exactly, issue too yes, but yeah which we'll talk about in another episode as well they had a nifty little way of saying yeah here's the money you're going to get oh by the way you're not going to get it for another like 30 years but yeah. it's actually not a, it's not a bad investment we'll, we'll talk about it Later sure, a bit, but uh, yeah, but no, you get a lot of those. But yeah, I think um, I forgot exactly whose quote it was. It was one of these guys. I, I'm I'm blanking on who it was, but just said that like even at that first game, you could just tell that this was just a different thing. Like you said, the guys coming from college, they didn't know any better, so it was like, oh, this is fine, whatever. I'm getting paid big money to you know play in the league, and I don't have to wait another year in college, or I don't have to wait another two years. Like that's really cool. But for people that had been in the NBA and seen you know a, you know that level of professionalism in basketball to come to the ABA where there was some, you know, issues with the refs, issues with the arenas. Where are we going this, you know, where are we going? You know, where's our team moving to? Who the hell's our coach? You know, the, just so many things that I'm sure as a player, you know, if you had seen another opportunity or had been with, you know, the NBA before that, coming to this league and seeing all this whirlwind stuff where some guys, you know, generally did not know that this was, you know, not the norm to have just a, a completely crazed league at all times. Those guys in the NBA are probably looking at it like, oh, geez, this is just ridiculous. So I could see it. But, yeah, I'm surprised that there weren't more that moved over just because that money was was really flowing. But, uh, yeah, when you get down to it, there's, there's really just not that many that, that did it. Yeah, um, you know, the ABA did chase after names. Um, we talked about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, obviously, the, you know, the ill-fated uh, forgetting or just, just not bothering to give the million-dollar check by George Mikan. Uh, they went pretty hard after Pete Maravich, but he chose the NBA. Um, Earl Monroe went to a few ABA exhibition games and, you know, didn't end up and went back to the NBA. John Havlicek was approached, but he um, wasn't really interested Um Elgin Baylor, Wilt Chamberlain, you know, were approached in the late 60s, um, but that obviously didn't happen. So, you know, they they they, they tried to a certain extent to, to get guys, but there was definitely, you know, um, not as much interest as you would necessarily think. I mean, obviously, the ABA was not a, you know, it was a new thing and it was hard to know how it was going to be. And, you know, it obviously had the issues of instability that we kind of went through. I, I don't know if there's anyone else who really could have made you know, a, a huge impact. I mean, you know, Kareem or Maravich, you know, you could definitely see having some box office appeal and bringing some more attention, but you know, they, they seem to, the ABA seemed to do better with its homegrown superstars for the most part. So that probably would have, you know, I, I, I'm just not sure there were, um, 
there was really going to be a path forward for them to, you know, find the right star. Uh, They probably would have just had to have several stars and, you know, and and just kind of keep that pipeline going in order to be able to, um, you know, survive or at least be merged in a stronger position than they did. All right. Uh, well, thanks, everyone, for checking us out. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please leave us a rating and review if you're into what we're doing. Uh, you can find us at harborparoxysm.com and we're on uh, Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. So thanks for listening and we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.